Good afternoon, I think. It's good to be back. I've spent the last two weeks in Israel and uh, just got back a couple of days ago. And so I'm not quite sure where I am or who you people are, <laughs> um, but it's really good to be back. It's hard to put into words how impactful that trip was. If you've been there, you know firsthand how meaningful a trip to the Holy Land is, how it shapes and reshapes the way you view scriptures in countless ways. And uh, before I left, I assured myself and others close to me that I wouldn't become one of those preachers who works Israel stories into every single one of their sermons. And yet after going, I can make no promises. <laughs> um, it would have been really tempting if we had a reading in the Gospels like something like, you know, Jesus, uh, you know, calling Peter out to walk on water or, you know, cooking fish on the seaside. And uh, I really would have just had to dive right in. But instead, we get Lazarus and the rich man and heaven and hell and all sorts of fun things. So... Um, opening disclaimer, I will not in the next few minutes try and even begin to give a full-on explanation or unpacking of a Christian view of heaven and hell and the afterlife, uh, in part because I'm so jet-lagged that I wouldn't really stand by anything I say today and might wake up tomorrow and want to redo everything, um, but also because I don't think that's what Jesus is on about. This is not Jesus attempting to give us or his listeners a fully developed and unpacked vision of the afterlife. Uh, remember a few weeks ago, if you were here, we talked about parables. We talked about the way in which Jesus uses parables to invite us into a certain worldview, into a story that he's telling. And in so doing, it helps us reshape and reframe our own stories and how we view our places in the world. And so this isn't the place and time to dissect a story like this line by line. I think we can get so hung up on the details that we miss what Jesus is actually wanting to say to us. What we see and what we just read is Jesus actually picking up on a conversation he began several passages before. In verse 13, it says this, No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Jesus is continuing a longer conversation that he had with the Pharisees around money, about love of money. And that's really where I want to root our conversation, less on different visions of the afterlife, but more on what does this have to do with our hearts? What does it mean to truly love God or to love wealth? And money. And so when Jesus said this, if you were following along in verse 14, what you see is the Pharisees, it says, who were lovers of money, heard all of this and they ridiculed him. And so I was reading up on this where we translate ridiculed. What it literally says is they lifted their noses at him. The Pharisees lifted their noses at Jesus. Kim Bailey says, this is to this day a gesture of disdain that you'll find all across the Middle East, in Palestine, in, uh, in Syria, Jordan, Lebanon. It's a very common gesture. And one of those things where we can say lots of things without saying anything at all, right? We all have versions of these gestures, don't we? When I go running, there's another dad, I assume, uh, who runs the exact same schedule as I do. And so every morning we pass each other. And we're not really runners. We're more like people trying to keep their dad bod in check. 
that's kind of our, our shared approach. And so we never say anything, but every morning we kind of give a little, a little nod as we're kind of trudging along. And it's kind of this mutual understanding that like, I hate this as much as you hate this. And yet here we are. And two days later, here we are again. You can say quite a lot with just a gesture. And that's what the Pharisees did. And so this is a really weighted moment, a really heavy and intense moment that they are walking into that Jesus is trying to, to walk through with them as they've made this gesture. This is the interaction. This is the moment in which Jesus then tells this story of Lazarus and the rich man. I think he's really helping them, wanting them and us to see that you cannot love God and you cannot love wealth. So four things I want to say as we walk through this pretty quickly. The first is this, the upside down nature of God's kingdom. Really a simple but I think profound truth is that in God's kingdom, those who often seem to have it wrong actually see the clearest. Those who seem to lack all the virtues and the graces and the advantages that we would all say culturally are the things to be valued, those are the ones in God's kingdom who Jesus sees and who Jesus has favor upon. And you see this throughout Jesus's life. I said I would resist, but I just can't. So this week, I was at the ruins of the pools of Bethesda where Jesus uh, healed the paralytic who uh, went to this pool. And it was really interesting to see these ruins because this was a pool that was commonly believed to be a source of healing. And when the waters were stirred up, people thought an angel was stirring up the waters and the first one in the water would be healed. And so if you're a paralytic, this is really bad news because there's always people who are bigger and stronger and faster, even in their brokenness, who will get in before you. And yet Jesus doesn't go to any of them. And the story in the gospels, Jesus goes to the one who's at the most and greatest disadvantage, the one who's in the greatest point of need, Jesus sees him and says, do you want to be healed? He goes to him in his brokenness and in his weakness. The pool was in that day, this commonly accepted place people went for hope. This was where you put your hopes and your trust. And Jesus said, keep those longings, keep those desires, but redirect them, reorient them to me. And that's where you'll find hope and where you'll find healing. Uh, Jesus does this time and time and time again. He turns upside down the things that we accept to be valuable, to be normative in our culture and in our world. Case in point, in our world, I think it's a common assumption then as well as now that the rich are the blessed and the powerful and the ones who are in places of favor. So you either have wealth and riches and you're very happy as a result, or you and I spend our lives trying to obtain it, believing that the only thing that stands between me and happiness is wealth. And yet what Jesus says in verse 22 is that the poor man, Lazarus, is carried away by angels to be with Abraham. And in verse 23, the rich man is in Hades where he's being tormented. It's interesting, Lazarus is named, he's known, he's dignified. The rich man is nameless, unnamed in every way. Interestingly, Lazarus is the only person in any of Jesus' parables that's given a name. Lazarus literally means the one whom God helps. The one whom God helps. I think Jesus wants to show us the outworking of the things we hold dear. Where these things lead us. Where will we end up when we give our lives in these ways, because it's not going to lead us where we think or where we've been told our whole lives. Jesus is saying, if your life is built around wealth and power, the pursuit of comfort, you may find it in this life, but it will come 
at a great cost. And in a similar way, if you're suffering and going through a long season of pain or brokenness or loss, don't assume that God is absent or uninvolved or unable to redeem your suffering. As we enter into God's kingdom, we see unlike the values of this world, God is not impressed by our wealth or our status or our power. It's not that he's just not impressed. He's not even neutral on it. Like he has very strong words to say about our love for money. He wants us to see that our love for wealth and prestige and influence is rooted in this kind of self-love. That's the ultimate sin we see here. It's this failure to love. I think that's the fundamental sin in this story. Uh, St. John Chrysostom put it this way. He says, we show mercy on the needy, not because of their virtue, but because of their misfortune in order that we ourselves may receive from the master his great mercy in order that we ourselves, unworthy as we are, may enjoy his generosity. Makes me think of James chapter 2, verse 6, which says, You have dishonored the poor man. One of the reasons I love Lazarus, not the man in the story, though I do love him, but the ministry that we support. One of the reasons I love Lazarus is Lazarus is a ministry based on helping us to see dignity and worth in other people. I wasn't able to be at the health day. I was in Israel, but I've heard already so many compelling stories. I hope some of you are able to go down for this um, because one of the things I love about health day in Lazarus is it speaks and embodies the dignity that calls forth dignity from people that in our culture are marginalized and overlooked and forgotten in every way. Aside from the big events of the year like health day, do you know what Lazarus does the rest of the year? Week by week, the main and primary thing they do is they go downtown in groups of small people one night a week, and they serve drinks to people. Hot drinks when it's cold and cold drinks when it's hot. And in such a simple yet profound act, every week, by engaging in conversation, by dignifying the other, they are speaking life. They are seeing the world as God wants us to see it, as he invites us in the gospel to see the world, to see it this way. Yet so often, I think our love for our wealth and our stuff and our power, it blinds us. Our vision is clouded so we can't see how we're meant to see. Kind of leading into this. Secondly then, uh, I think Jesus asks us to maintain a long-term and a patient vision. Look at verse 25. Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Seems like in the church today, the word flourishing is really having its day. Everyone loves the word flourishing. We at Trinity talk about living a flourishing life. And rightly understood, it's a really good word. It's a really beautiful thing to say we want to live into a good and flourishing life. And yet in this story, I think we are challenged because flourishing is not interchangeable with a successful and stress-free existence. Those do not go hand in hand. And yet we have entire theologies built up around this. Entire parts of the Christian world that live into this as a theology. They call it the prosperity gospel. That says if you're really following Jesus and doing his will, you will know that is true by the abundance of your material possessions. Did you see a few weeks ago, Benny Hinn came out and totally rebuked his own teaching in this? It's fascinating. It's on YouTube. Look up Benny Hinn Confession. 
Most YouTube videos I've seen with Benny Hinn involve some act of him pushing people down and then falling down and asking for money. But this one, it's, it's fascinating. He basically says, I got it all wrong. And he says, if I hear another person in my position asking for money and believing that your gift of money will be a sign of God's favor and blessing in your life, he said, I'm going to be sick to my stomach. I was shocked when I watched it. I went in super skeptical. And yet I was shocked. And I want to believe him. Like in my heart of hearts, I want to believe there's some sincere repentance there where he realizes the error of his own ways. And it's that this theology that he's taught for years is ultimately cruel. It's ultimately deeply harmful because that is not simply in the cards for many of us, maybe most of us. And yet if we believe that when we have pain and suffering and financial insecurity and broken relationships, we think somehow we've failed to do what God asks us to do. Somehow we've missed God's blessing and we're out of his will and not living a faithful life. I think of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 talks about a tree that yields fruit in its season. Maybe a good question to ask is, what season are we in? What season of life are we in? There's a certain theology that says every season should be one of abundance. Every season will be overflowing with goodness and excess. And yet when life presents challenges and struggles, the only option then is to say it's linked to our failures and our shortcomings. And that, that may be true. Don't hear what I'm not saying. There are very real consequences to the decisions you and I make, but it's not an inevitable one-to-one correlation. In a similar way, we can't have this formulaic, almost magical approach to discipleship that says, if we are faithful and do what Jesus says for us to do, it will guarantee circumstantial changes in our fortunes. And what I think Jesus is asking us today is to say, are we willing to walk in faithful obedience to God even when our situation does not immediately improve? You may be in a very abundant and overflowing season of life. And for that, there can be a cause of great joy. Celebrate the abundance in your life. And yet at the same time, if you're in a season of reestablishing roots or realizing you're overgrown and going through the painful process of pruning back your limbs, it does not mean that you're out of favor with God. You can actually rejoice in that season because God's at work in whatever season we find ourselves in. Thirdly, I think Jesus wants us to see The decisions we make have eternal consequences. Look at verse 26. He says, Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. There's quite a lot that we could say about that verse. (laughs) I'll make just one observation. Jesus, I think, wants us to see the profound ways in which the lives you and I live, day in and day out, are connected to eternity. There's a certain continuity to our life, to the life you and I live right now and to the life of eternity, the life of his kingdom. I think the church sometimes fails to do this. We drive a wedge between these realities and therefore we say, whatever you do in this life, just do what makes you happy, pursue it, and then when you die, hopefully you can go to heaven. Hopefully you have fire insurance. That's what we called it when I was growing up. That salvation was fire insurance. And we did all these evangelistic efforts that were really only focused on making sure you had that ticket to heaven. Very little connected to what you do here and now. Our church growing up did a thing called uh, Heaven's Gate 
hates hell's flames. Ever heard of this? It's literally meant to scare the hell out of you. And uh, what was interesting, it was all for Christians. Everyone who went was already a Christian. And yet it was like a reminder. If you don't have your ticket to heaven, make sure you get it as quick as you can. I don't know how this has to do with the rest of the life you're living or what you do in school or work or at home tomorrow. But just have that ticket, put it in a file like you would an insurance policy, and then you'll be good. Jesus is trying to help us really see the folly in that, to say there is great continuity in the way we live right now, the way we cultivate virtue, the way we seek God's kingdom is meant to be a taste of what's to come. It actually continues because that's the story we're living into. You and I are a part of the story of God's kingdom where we belong to him and by the death and resurrection of Jesus, that story becomes our story and it begins now and continues for eternity. And I think if we can see this, the things we do right here and right now have far more weight and gravity to them. They really matter. The decisions we make matter right now. I think this is part of the rich man's failure. The rich man in the story fails to see what's right in front of him. He doesn't alleviate the suffering at his own door. He fails to see and he fails to act. St. Jerome put it this way, Lazarus was lying at the gate in order to draw attention to the cruelty paid to his body and to prevent the rich man from saying, I did not notice him. He was in the corner. I could not see him. No one announced him to me. He lay at the gate. He goes on. You saw him every time you went out and every time you came in. When your crowds of servants and clients were attending you, he lay there full of ulcers. I feel as though we culturally are very guilty of this. We have a failure to see what's right in front of us. I grew up in the church. Me and my peers longed to do great things for God. We wanted to go around the world and do great things for God. And yet as I'm a little bit older now and look back on it, I think that desire, though in part noble, was also mixed in with a whole lot of wanderlust and the desire for spiritual tourism. It's much easier to say I wanted to go around the world and do good things, much harder to say I wanted to stick around my home in Marietta and care for those who are broken and needy there. And I think this is something we struggle with in our own ways. We say, I want to go and care for orphans in Africa, and yet we have no regard whatsoever for foster children on our own street or in our own city. Could care, don't care at all about uh, children at the border in our own country who are rounded up like cattle, put in cages. We say, we'll go do something noble somewhere else, and we miss what's right in front of us, day in and day out. I think my own generation, millennials, we're we're guilty of this. We want to do big and grand things for God, and yet struggle to see how he could ask us to do something small and seemingly meaningless, something that is rooted in unseen ways, rooted in particular local ways. That's what he calls us to, though. It's not in the grand gestures that we live faithful lives. It's in doing what Jesus did, which is where you find yourself in very local, out-of-the-way ways to show a radical care for the poor and the marginalized. This is what Jesus did. He radically cares for the poor and the marginalized, and he asks his disciples to do the same. And so in a very simple way, if you're wondering, like, what do I take out of this sermon? In a very simple way, serve the economically poor of our city. Find time, carve out time in your schedule to care for those who are poor and marginalized right in front of us. The people that we have seared our souls, seared our eyes from being able to see. And yet they're right in front of us day in and day out. Go and volunteer 
with Lazarus. Go help with the refugee ministries that our Eastside Parish is pioneering. Uh, at announcement time, you'll hear in just a minute about Trinity on the Border, uh, a, a very practical ministry of the Anglican Church caring for families crossing the border. Um, join us in that partnership. Um, but there's other ways to care for the poor. There's other kinds of poor. You have economically poor, but you have others who are on the margins, who are not seen, who are marginalized by our society. Children, the elderly. Think of the disabled. Go and serve with the large community here in the city of Atlanta. Minority communities. On and on we could go. In each of these, there are radical ways for you and I to show the dignity and worth and the value of each and every person. Fourth, and we'll close here. Do you hear and do you see Jesus? Verse 30 says, he says, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. They're speaking to this great history of the faith, this Old Testament witness. And for us, we have not only the Old Testament, but we have the New Testament. We have the church. We have centuries of people who have lived and embodied this life of saintly living, who are witnesses to us of this self-giving love of Jesus. And yet for us in each and every age, we have to actually decide, will we hear Jesus? Because we can very easily let a message like this come in one ear and go out the other and say, oh, that was a nice thought, or someone should do something about that and yet not realize that we are meant to be that person, that you and I are meant to be people who embody this and hear Jesus' words as a word to ourselves. And yet we can live such inattentive, frankly, selfish lives that we check out of his call to us. And I think ultimately that's the failure that this rich man has in this story. Uh, This is his great undoing. He's so hardened to the point that he fails to see where God is actually meant to be seen. He fails to find God where God is meant to be found. God is not in power or success or affluence or riches. But Jesus is a friend of sinners. He's rest for the weary. He's near to the downhearted and to the outcast. And I think very simply his word to us today is if we want to be near to him, if we want to have heaven, then we need to be in the places that he will spend his time, where he will be. We need to go and be with him in those places to find him in the faces of the poor and the neglected and the weary, to see their story as our own story, to see our common humanity, our shared need for God and his goodness and the love of God in Jesus. May it be so for us this week. If you're able, would you stand? Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. My name is Trip Prince, and I'm the parish pastor here at Trinity on the north side. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people growing into Christ's likeness. You can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting us online at atltrinity.org. God bless you and have a great week.